Welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Let me cut to the chase. I know you got a busy, uh, well, I don't know what time it is out there. What time is it? This is our Friday evening, mate. This is... Oh, I'm, I'm eating. I'm like, I'm eating into date night and drinking. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> no drinking. There's no drinking. Sadly. Yeah, we're in a holy city. So. Oh, okay. Just a strange uh, ferment. Just slightly fermented yogurt. Okay. Um, yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've. My whole premise of this uh, podcast is to interview people that I never get the chance to spend an hour with, and. Um, right. I sort of pick their brains about, I mean, ostensibly it's supposed to be about the future. Um, mm-hmm. It sometimes does become about the future, but uh, sometimes it doesn't. I don't really care. It's just a good, it, the idea is a good conversation. Um, so we, we, we usually start off by just, um, in this case, it would be each of you going through a little bit of a 30 second resume of like what you sort of done and how you got to where you are and maybe a little bit about what you're doing now. Yeah. Okay. So you can take it in turns. Okay. Are we, are we live? Are we You're live, yeah. I'm, I'm, I pressed the okay. ma- magic button and it is apparently recording, although it has failed me in the past. Right. Well, cool. Well, I can get started then and turn it over to Ferris. So, yep. I, I'm Rosie Jakob. I claim Ferris's business partner as well as life partner, the, the wife title as well. And my career started working in entertainment branding at Translation, which was Jay-Z and Steve Stout's entertainment branding company. And from there, I really became fascinated with digital technology. At the time, uh, we were just starting to see brands explore using Facebook and Twitter for uh, commercial purposes and conversational purposes. And so I jumped on that bandwagon and had a career as a social media manager and a community manager and then a social strategist and ultimately ended up leading a strategy team at 360i working on um, brands like oreo bravo tv nbc and leading social and emerging media at sachi and sachi and then in march of 2013 we started genius seals but um before we talk about that i'll let ferris give a little background. Okay, yeah, that's cool. Um, After a couple of misstarts in journalism, music, and consulting, I penetrated the advertising industry as a media planner. Uh, Pretty quickly after that, I maybe a year and a half went to Naked, which was a sort of magic hybrid place that did lots of things and nothing, depending on how you think about it. And um, I was there for about six years, or maybe longer, in London, in Sydney, and in New York. Then I was the chief digital officer at McCann in New York, which was crazy and interesting because of the scale of those businesses. And then I went to a holding company and I set up a small technology agency. And then I sold my equity in that agency three years later um, for reasons that became very apparent, in my opinion, sometime after I left MDC. And yeah, we, Ferris had proposed um, that we get married and also that we work on travel. We were 
start our own. We thought we would just travel around, do some speaking gigs at various conferences, and pick a place that we liked to live. And it just became very clear that we didn't really have a favorite place. We liked everywhere better than we liked somewhere. And we were fortunate enough to have developed pretty strong relationships with clients and colleagues over the years in New York and Paris and London and Australia as well that were happy for us to work with them remotely from wherever. And so we have been nomadic since March of 2013 without a, an apartment or a home base of any kind. And Genius Seals we founded in December of 2013. Yeah, it was not intentional in the sense, especially I think one of the greatest tricks that big machines, be it an agency or a large corporation, plays on you implicitly by the nature of working there is to convince you that what you do by itself is not a way to make money because you need a big machine to make the money. And what we found was that that's just false. Um, and so our business is predicated on a few product lines in a sort of hybrid, again, creative and strategy kind of offering. Yeah. Um, workshops and talks take us around the world consulting projects we do one or two a year for agencies or brands coca-cola or ad agencies like that various kinds of things where we think about problems for people and in between we do a bit of writing and podcasting and all that kind of fun living online stuff yeah that's awesome i mean i think i think we we did an interview the four a's didn't we like it was a year ago it's like about practically yeah it was almost exactly a year ago exactly a year yeah, ago and i remember this year and I remember asking you the cliche question that everyone asked you, which is, what is your biggest learning being from being global nomads? And I remember you saying, the world's looking increasingly similar. That's definitely one part of it. There's a sort of endless homogeneity that kind of the movement of capital moves around the world. And, and it's happening like visibly in the last five or six years, right? Like cities become similar because the same shops appear everywhere and the same services and same uh, companies essentially kind of roll out everywhere. Yeah, earlier this year we had a job in Brazil and then later a job in India and we needed a place to stop over just for personal sanity so we wouldn't have to make this really long haul flight and we decided on Ethiopia and we went to the capital, Addis Ababa. Addis Ababa, yeah. Yes, and yes, and even there, it the city was not so different from what you would expect. I mean, it just it's it is starting to look the same. There was not a Kentucky Fried Chicken, but there was some other was, you know Tennessee was, Fried Chicken was, or something like that. There was an In-N-Out Burger. But I don't oh, think yes. it was a real franchise. I think it was a. Uh, uh, off license kind of copy but yeah i mean that was probably the most different place we've been to for a long time although it just still wasn't it's interesting it's interesting it's interesting that you're saying that is maybe that's a sort of transitionary point where where these uh they, they understand the power of brands and they sort of while the while the going is good before the real kfc gets out there um they sort of the sort of a moment of opportunism where you can actually have a Tennessee fried chicken and um, people have some money to spend on chicken and uh, you can do reasonably well until the big guys come in. I mean, yeah, I think the reason KFC is salient to Rosie is because a woman we met on our flight here from Delhi 
he was carrying a box of KFC on the plane. From Germany back to India? No, yeah. probably from Germany. Really? No, she like, she was was coming from, from Yeah, but I, I imagine it was from Delhi. Like, they have KFC okay. in India. Okay. Yeah, they do. They, they definitely do have it in India. India. Yeah. yeah. So maybe from Delhi. Maybe I, was, I was going to say, though, I think part of it is technology. Because in Ethiopia, coffee is huge. It yep. is a part of ritual. It's, you know, a part of their culture. Mm-hmm. And... I talked to a guy who who was leading a food tour and he was around my age in his late 20s or early 30s and I asked him about coffee and how it was related to his life and how that was different from his parents and he talked about how growing up you lived in rural and remote places and even if you were coming you know into the city to work you still had this this sort of tradition where anyone who was making coffee in the near village would ring the bell or would send their child to run around and say, look, like it's time for coffee. And this is where all of the community matters would be discussed. And the community matters could be anything from, um, you know, repairs that needed to be made in the village to people's personal relationships and kids and family issues. And he said, you know, now that we see in America people are connecting on Facebook or the rest of the world, maybe not America. Why would we talk to our parents in this way over coffee? It's, it just doesn't make sense. And so he was saying he and his friends now, because they have jobs in the city, they'll share an apartment together and they always have their mobile devices and these sorts of traditions in some places that, you know, technology has arrived to are, are starting to break down. I do think that's an important point. Like, when we talk about the creeping similarity of places, it's only at a certain level, right? It, it's a certain... So we talk about this thing called the familiarity wave, where when you get to a new country, your immediate response tends to be that's different. Things look different. The color of things is different. The air is different, whatever. And then after a while, you realize that there's Starbucks everywhere, and so that makes it feel familiar. But then if you spend a bit more time there and actually talk to people like Rosie is very prone to doing, you get to realize that the cultural context, the expectations, the way people think about things is quite different. And where they come from and how they you know, pass these different tools is quite different as well, right? Yeah. So I think one of the things, if it's a, a, a thing that we learn, it's something we talk about, which is just by virtue of traveling as much as we do, it forces you to recognize that what you consider to be normal is entirely arbitrary. Yep. Like, in Bulgaria, eating horse is normal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and everything is normal if you're used to it. And yeah. those normal things you think are normal are as arbitrary as everybody else's normal things. And you shouldn't give them primacy in any way. And equally, despite the similarity, I think also important to point out that, you know, often in our old industries or current adjacent industries, there is a desire to run global brand campaigns. Yeah. And that probably rarely resonates at any kind of deep cultural level because they mostly come out of Europe and America and frankly the people and the culture and the linguistic mannerisms of India and Asia are so different yeah yeah it's no it's really I mean I was uh, I did my little I'm doing my little bit of traveling as you know I've been um, I actually went to Serbia at the beginning of the year to speak at an IAB conference and um, yeah it was int- very very interesting and, um, you know, I, I think they, they don't have any, they have very little of their own creative. It's, it's, it's all yeah. sent to them and it doesn't really, yeah. doesn't really mean a lot. It doesn't have any cultural sensitivity at all. 
and then um, and then I then, well then I then I went to Porto you know I just I just uh, about a month ago was there and um, that was really interesting just the dynamic there is you've got a relatively in comparison to the rest of Europe a relatively poor country I mean one of the poorer countries yeah I mean I would say you know it's not it's not the Balkans it's not the Eastern Bloc but it's the next you know it's southern Europe um, mm-hmm. and it's certainly the cost I think the average income there is about 600 euros a month um, mm-hmm. so you know you've got a you've got a, um, a local government that sees tourism as a uh, as, as a way to, to for people to make money and they have eight tourists for every inhabitant in that city see that that's probably quite a lot but i think so there are different bits of this right where the cumulative advantage kicks in people go to the places that other people have been to that's just sort of how we work we see this quite a lot right there are this little pathways that people follow be it from TripAdvisor or from word of mouth whatever to different places and then they get popular and then things get too popular right so i if I recall, Amsterdam has taken down its I am Amsterdam, I am Amsterdam yep. sign mm-hmm. and is actively trying to dissuade tourists now because they have less than a million people and 16 million tourists a year. Yeah. Wow. And so that is, the, the city isn't big enough to sustain Same with to Venice. Sort of handle that much yep. tourism. That, yeah, exactly. Venice is a yeah. nightmare because it's so expensive and very small. And yeah, like there's lots of other places that are nicer, but everybody wants to go to the places that everybody else has been to. I mean, actually, Venice is a great point because we went to Cinque Terre um, in Italy as well and noticed the same the same thing. It was just they had to close down the trails between all the cities because there was just so much foot traffic that combined with the weather was causing landslides yeah erosion all kinds of stuff yeah. yeah the world is getting really full basically Ed. the world is getting really really <laughs> no it is it's true it's true but what's interesting what's, what's interesting you know what's interesting there is um what that does to culture no so i had i mean i talked to a few people when i was there and some people were like well you know airbnb has taken over the whole of the, the city um and you yeah. know that's forcing rents up and the locals have to move out of their own town and the contrarian view is we never went downtown in Porto because there was nothing to do and there's nothing to see and there was nowhere to go. And now there is. So, um, you know, it's interesting. It's, yeah. We, we, you sort of hacked the expression. We say the costs are the benefits. Like the, the exact thing that makes something think better or different is what's going to make it worse as well. Unfortunately, that's just sort of I mean, how things work. Yeah. With India specifically in Rishikesh, we love the slower pace and the fact that there is no booze. There's an enforced, you know, period of sobriety. Um, and we love the fact that we get to walk everywhere, but equally because everything is slower, sometimes things are not as fast as you would want them to be. And sometimes transportation is hard and sometimes the internet connectivity is less robust than you'd like. And those things power are- Power goes out quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. Power goes out a few times a day. Like it goes a, back to, it goes back to the, it goes back to the, it goes back to the, dare I mention him, Lewis CK point um, made several years ago right. about getting Wi-Fi on a plane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. everything's great and no one's happy yeah but we can't he's been deplatformed so we can't <laughs> talk um but yeah no i do think that we get to sort of experience the, the upsides and the downside of it a lot because we but, yeah. so what so you know what when 
you you are obviously end up doing a lot of whether it's working whether it's talking whether it's workshopping with um companies and agencies and people involved in brands all over the world are they is the are they facing the same issues or are they are they other different stages or different issues that they're dealing with there's different 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 stages um to give you an example we were speaking at an what was it called melt Yes. In India. Yeah, we were speaking at a conference earlier this year in Mumbai, and because I, I know some planners there from you know the internet and stuff, and from being there before, uh, they asked Rosie and I to give out the graduating diplomas to Miami Ad School's uh, planning boot camp because okay. we were the only planners, as kind of per usual, uh, that get to speak <laughs> anywhere basically. Hey, Mark Pollard was there. Oh, Mark Pollard was there too. Hey, sorry. Yeah. Ex-planners, whatever. Anyway, um, and he was making a joke about it. It's like, you know, planners can do this too, not just creative directors. Anyway, but he was saying, you know, everybody in our part of the world, I mean, in the Western, the Western world, world yeah, I find it weird calling it that. Anyway, uh, it's, it's facing a, a sort of long-term low growth environment, right? So growth has become an obsession while, you know, uh, just the word of it has become an obsession possibly. Growth hacking. Whatever, all that <laughs> stuff, because there's not a lot of it about. Yep. And he's like, India, India grows about 10% on average per a year so if you do nothing at all you still grow at 10 percent. so that isn't the way that's not how our problems work right now that's not what we need brands to do and i thought that was really interesting um but i think on the on the other side of it the the cult of branding the language of branding because we're all connected and we're all on twitter and we're all writing and reading the same people mm. everybody has read the same books and speak the same brand language and gets to the same kind of thoughts maybe at a slightly different point right so maybe content is still a really big thing or a emerging big thing in India because 100 million people just got 4G phones for the first time thanks to Reliance Geo for nothing. Right? And because there are so many different languages right. and so many different subcultures to create that sort of level of yeah. differentiation. Yeah, I mean, I always, I, I always yeah. looked at the last, de I always looked at the last decade and I, to be honest, in, in a lot of the planning awards of the Jay Shard Awards, India cleaned up. I mean, they just... Yeah, and, and 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 then you go. Well, why is that? Well, because you know, yeah, they're smart people who probably understand planning and probably have you know g get it. Um, but they're also yeah, there's yeah. also the social socio cultural change is so massive that you know it gives yeah. you, it gives you something to push against as a brand that you know in in these other um, environments where there isn't such massive cultural change and there isn't such significant growth. You know, you'll you, you know. You know the women, the change in women, the role of women, and the lives of women in India yeah. alone is worthy of several books. You know, and, and they are going through. You know, uh, there's sort of an entire generation evolving. In, evolving is the wrong word, but like being brought into the middle classes and to a consumer back is good life and a supermarket life from a place that didn't have that. Yep. So from a zero market to a huge, massive, incredibly large market overnight, right? Mm -hmm. So demonstrating growth when you go from not selling soap to anybody to selling soap to half a billion people right. is good growth. That's going to be great stuff, right? And yeah. it's a different set of challenges, to your point. It's uh, some education, some distribution. Obviously, Unilever's sachetization program has got mm -hmm. their brands into trash bins all over the country. Yep. Um, and home. Homes, obviously, too, but we see them mostly all over the floor. Um, we often wonder, we had this discussion before, um, do, do they count as impressions? Because we were walking through the big park in Calcutta, I think it was Calcutta. Yeah, and, and there was just, just trash everywhere. And it mostly is Unilever brand sachets. Yeah. Not mostly, but a very large amount of it that's visible. A ton through. of Dove, yeah. Dove sachets. And I'm like, are they impressions? Does that count as 
don't know. A brand, trash advertising. Trash advertising, <laughs> brand impact. I don't know. That's a, there was the, um, this famous um, Frank Lowe story that he wrote this letter to Sergio Zeman. Do you ever, do you ever remember hearing this story? I didn't know, but I, I've met Frank once and yeah. Sergio was the I, guy. I think, I, think, I think Frank was in St. Moritz or Gestad or somewhere. And, uh, yeah, sounds right. And he was uh, he looked out of his window into the town square and, and and wrote this very lyrical and poetic piece about how as he looked through this you know around this square which had origins in the 13th century and you know medieval was you know, reference to medieval times. All he saw were um, uh, various Coca-Cola signs and dilapidated umbrellas. Um, you know, ripped and torn, and you know, was this the future of what we were just supposed to be doing? <laughs> it was actually, I mean, it was super uh, articulate. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know, this is sort of the brand is everywhere, including on, in, including in piles of trash. Um, well, yeah, the trash thing, but also, like, I mean, I mean, just to go to everywhere you go, no matter where it is, South America, especially Asia, especially Eastern Europe, especially. Coke and outdoor and awnings and umbrellas yeah. and chairs and tables. There is so much of it. Like it is an incredible. It's presence in Myanmar. We went to Myanmar, like or Burma. I think they prefer yeah. Burma inside there, and we have to call it Myanmar because we're being politically correct. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in Myanmar, they call it Burma still because they think that Myanmar was a rebrand by the junta, which doesn't. They don't believe count. Anyway, whatever. Okay, going. it was Wait, four being, years ago. It was four years ago, about two or three years after it opened up, and the first thing you see when you get into the airport is a massive coke ad and I was like hi guys how are you <laughs> yeah so um so do you do you do you ha- I mean there's an interesting challenge for you guys I mean I remember um making this mistake myself when I I, I went to uh Hungary it's about to be 20 years ago and I had the sort of Marshall McLuhan presentation about the future of advertising and it was going to be all going to be different and you know when yeah. we, we went off on this big rant 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 <laughs> um about all this stuff and you know about how things needed to be better and different and change and uh we looked i looked around the room and you know the, the average age of the audience was probably about 24 and um someone who was 19 uh, put his hand up about towards the end of the presentation and said, I don't know if you know or realize this, but advertising has only been legal in Hungary for about 18 months. And it was just like, oh, <laughs> I just got yes. punched in the stomach there. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, if, I wonder if you ever find any things where you, you end up, you know, how you get the balance right. Because as you said, you know, there are a lot of things in common, but there are a lot of things different. And sometimes you can, as you, as you push uh, enthusiastically into the future and, sh- and start talking about change, you can sometimes become, you know, you're sometimes a little too far ahead of the curve. I mean, I think it's a great point. And when we work in Australia or New Zealand, they frequently talk about losing talent to the UK, Europe, America. And yet when you look at global creative, some of the best creative comes from the Antipodes and from Auckland and Sydney and Melbourne and one of the things that we try to do rather than push people to away because it seems that whenever people 
people next door or down the street. Madison Avenue looks at other people in Madison Avenue. People in London are looking at other UK-based agencies for inspiration and also um, comparison. But if you remove that geographical limitation and start looking at the global creative landscape and not just what's winning it can, because that's also not representative either. That still tends to be some of the bigger shocks. You'll find that the inspiration set is so much broader and so much more interesting. So I think that's something that we push against is trying to expose people to, you know, further pursuits of creativity. And sometimes that's not even within advertising, right? It doesn't have to be another brand campaign that you're comparing to. It could be an experience or some other yeah, totally. thing, I guess. Things. Things. I, I do think there's <laughs> definitely different markets are at different stages of evolution, and um, there's less kind of like fatigue and ubiquity of advertising that we've experienced in, in America and the UK for the last two decades, I suppose. Um, it, it, there's just less exposure to that kind of form of culture and uh, that form of promise and that form of presence i suppose so there's definitely a tailoring to it and and i think sometimes though people uh, think you're right i think we've stopped to some degree doing the future of advertising thing as well i did it my first international gig was in romania and i did one of those and one guy was like you, you know oh we interviewed me for their tv program and said you guys are from our future and they're very excited and they're looking forward to it because it was 2004 and everything was quite exciting then and then I went to a couple of the big agencies and, and to your observation, mostly like, it was, it's mostly repurposed work from other markets and that's it. I'm like, so, but the inspiration part didn't go badly. It just wasn't immediately applicable, perhaps. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm looking at and really interested in, and I've had a few conversations with people right now recently, and um, it's interesting because you guys sort of combine the, the media's uh, planning strategy with the creative um, part of the story that um, we've sort of, I think a lot of marketers in the US are sort of, you know, as you said, we talked, we talked about growth hacking, growth, hacking growth because there is no growth or, yeah. the, you know, and so very much um, lining up with things that are programmatic things that fill channels, things that give them the security, the full security of ROI, that you end up, and I was talking to a large, you know, a Fortune top 20 company, and, you know, they, their comment back to me was, you know, well, this is what we've been doing in the last 18 months, and I think we've lost our brand. You know, we haven't, there hasn't been creativity injected into yeah. the process. And I wonder if that's something you were hearing. We, we hear it a lot, I mean, I think this week Adidas very bravely announced that they had made a misstep by thinking that if you just put money online and direct response it, you can drive e-commerce forever because everybody that's done any growth hacking, whatever that might be, knows that it just stops working after a while because everybody that you could possibly hassle into buying something has been hassled to the point where they hate you so much. <laughs> it's kind of like, I was talking about this today. It's, it's, the problem with the targeting but anyway yes people have i think to some degree been forced to look at very short-term horizons and very short-term efficacy measures like roi which are inherently efficiency measures and not long-term effective measures and and that's a reality right i mean yeah. there are 
the average CMO is not in his or her position for that long. And there are targets that are often short term based. And so this is a reality that all of us have to deal with because this is affecting agency work as well. It's not just client side. When this happens, then we do see a little bit of a loss in creativity and, and less brand work overall. Yeah, and it makes sense just from a personal incentive structure point of view, right? Because so, you've got to think about individuals and what they need, be it a marketing director or an ad agency person or whatever. And, and if brand work isn't going to, if you're not driven by things like creative fame and trying to get to can, like some marketers obviously are and believe in that longer term thing, cool. Yeah. But in the short term, if you're not going to be in the job in five years time and you pretty much know that and you can relatively be sure that's the case, right? And why would you invest in something that someone else is going to get the credit for? So like, it's very hard to understand how you can get somebody to buy into a 10 year branding positioning strategy or whatever, if they know it's not going to be, it's kind of like doing it for the the good of the brand. They're like, well, what's that? What does that mean? A religion? Like it's, it's silly, right? <laughs> and beyond just the brands. I mean, when you look at publicly traded companies, right? The stock market is looking for growth and shareholders um, are, are writing back to brands and saying, you've got to change the way you think. If you looked at, you know, JetBlue 10 years ago, JetBlue was amazing. And then Wall Street essentially said, you know, get rid of your CEO because he's too customer centric. And overly brand focused. And overly brand focused. So he was fired for trying to do what we think is the job. And now JetBlue, it's like, eh. It's just just another airline. It went from being the cool airline to fly that had great perks and great snacks to, I mean, I just, I couldn't care less JetBlue and Delta and American. To me, they're all same, same. I agree. And and not to put everything at the feet of banks, but it's mostly their fault. And uh, the the example that the analyst who got JetBlue CEO, the founding, one of the founding teams of JetBlue CEO, fired compared it directly to the profitability of spirit the worst airline the most hated airline in america but it's really profitable because they make you buy you know your blanket and, your, and whatever so the air you breathe <laughs> if that short-term profitability is held over the heads of both brand managers and even ceos by the city then what are they going to do yeah i mean uh, yeah i mean obviously those are those are those are the forces at work and the forces that um you know make people's lives who who do that brand stuff for a living kind of challenging but I, I i do feel like there's obviously you've got the adidas story there but i think also you've got um i think it's le- i think my catalog because you know when you're looking for something i mean I was, like i'm looking for this right now you find it everywhere but i've seen um lego diageo and cabri all announce um mm-hmm. within the last month that they're they're putting creativity back into their training programs well, that might not be, um, you know, it might be just, uh, you know, it might be just uh, an academic exercise. But I, I think, I, I think there's a sort of a general realization that 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 something's missing there. Um, the the challenge, I think. We've actually. Sorry, you've had. Gone. So what you, no, gone, you gone. No, I think the challenge is, you know, clearly that doesn't necessarily mean a swing back to a- agency favorability. Um, mm, no. and you know the 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 cat is out of the bag on agencies, uh, you know, and that to me is an interesting thing. I, I I got this put this thing on LinkedIn. I don't know if you saw it. Is you know why do people leave ad agencies and start other ad agencies? 
It was just, <laughs> I know, it's just, it was just such a, a common sense thing to me that I just thought I'd post it. It's just exploded. There's like 20,000 views of this thing and it's really <laughs> struck a chord, you know. It's just like, yes. what we don't need, we don't need more ad agencies. Uh, okay, so there's three things there that I'd like to just touch on. One, which is our clients are here. We're having the same thing. Creativity is back on the agenda this year. I would say that... For 2020. 2020, 2020 yeah. Not, not this just, year. Mm, just, just like sustainability was this year? Yeah, yeah, well, so innovation was for a few years. And then innovation, that when I was an innovation person, then after that, then the innovation thing seemed to go away. And then for a while, the last couple of years, comms came back because everybody was really confused about integration and how things fit together and who did what when and then that was a lot of that stuff and then i think what happened is as i said right direct marketers know if you keep direct marketing to the same people your response rates will go down over time That's how direct marketing works growth hacking is just direct marketing online and it's gonna have response rates declining over time so give it two three years in market and the response rates will drop down to zero Suddenly, these companies aren't selling any stuff anymore in their DTC, DTC right. labs or whatever. And so suddenly, someone's going to go, wait a second. Oh, yeah, that's if um, we need some creativity or something. Okay. So it's like the culture of advertising, like everything else, swings on a pendulum from one to the other. Of Media took control for a while, had all the money and the magic targeting and the Facebook. And then everyone realized they hated Facebook and they hated targeting and they hated retargeting. And so creativity comes back to the fore for a while. But that's fun. That's fine. Um, Ad agencies are not the only place to get creativity from, nor are ads the only thing that can affect brand communication and commercial impact. And to your point, there are the ecosystem, uh, or if you like, competitive set of ad agencies is much, much broader now than it was even 10 years ago, be it supply chains of content for influencers. It's like a $10 billion industry, whatever influencers are is now. Um, be it media companies whose bottom line has been threatened so badly that they're forced to put together studios to sell brand solutions and advertorial, disgusting advertorial content to, to, rep, to, to fight with agencies in order to get more money to shore up the fact that Google and Facebook killed their businesses, or like, you know, be it consultancies, be it, there's a lot more people competing to provide strategic counsel and creative production um, uh, across the whole board. And the third point is why do people leave ad agencies to start ad agencies? It's to sell those ad agencies to holding companies. That is the reason. It is always the reason, give or take. Yeah, but no, fair. no one's gonna, no one's gonna, buy, no holding company's gonna buy another ad agency. I mean, any. I mean, probably not for a while. But I think that the guys that did Adam and Eve, they're now on their third like traditional creative agency that they've sold to. So they've yeah. got a pretty good track record, haven't they? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So um. Need a new one. So. When you when you pass through what you've just said, the 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 catalyst behind this trans these transformations are Google and Facebook. Um, They're big parts of it. A huge part of it. And now, what's what what do you feel? What do you see? Or what do you feel about the the gaze of the various legislative government folks peering over these? institutions? Right. The the tide is turn. I mean, what I don't what I find sort of interesting it's a little bit of the growth hacking mentality is you know we're in a world i mean obviously people speak out of both sides of their mouths but we're in a world yeah. where sort of morality workplace ethics diversity um you know uh political correctness uh certainly here in the u.s are kind of at the forefront of conversations mm -hmm. about internal corporate culture yet 
the marketing team is happy to spend millions of dollars with Facebook, um, whose ethics, you know, you could sort of call as being sort of dubious. They just were fined $40 million, which is a paltry sum of money for falsifying data they were providing to agencies. Yeah. So I mean, it seems to be, it seems to be, I mean, no one, no one on Matt, what I don't, it's hard to understand, but no one is pulling out of Facebook. No. So, I mean, I think, especially in America, there's this idea of everyone's fending for themselves. And, you know, that if even if we stop using Facebook, our competitors will still be there and still spending there. So we can't. And so we'll just continue doing what we've done. I think that we will continue to see changes because it's been become part of the public discourse. When it was just in trade press, I think we saw no change whatsoever. Now that people who don't work in advertising or media or communications are starting to talk about the evils of Facebook, that's where I think we could possibly start to see something change in the next years because ultimately consumers have buying power. And we have seen that, you know, even things like Under Armour CEO tweeting about his support for Trump has led to a decline in their sales and decline in their value on the stock market, which then changes the way that the company operates. So there are these, you know, points of tension that can become trigger points for people to act. We're just, I think, on the early side of that. Agreed. And uh, to your point about ethics, I think how you what you do in the world, everything you do as an ethical component, how you spend money as a brand, because it's such a large amount of money, has a massive ethical component, of course. So it is disingenuous to say the least, if not outright shameful, to say things like, well, it's not my fault that my ad appeared in hate, next to hate speech because programmatic, or because I did a network buy on Fox, and some of the Fox isn't evil, whatever, hate isn't pure hate speech, or, or they fired Sam Shepard, so that's not the case anymore anyway. But like, so how we spend money and how we allocate money for our brands has an ethical component, both in terms of how it impacts the immediate mediascape, how it impacts the efficacy of communication in general, how it impacts how people trust and or hate advertising en masse, and how it destabilizes governments and, and politics and journalism. So all those things are important, I think, but and, yeah. I mean, I'm not giving this as an excuse, but it's hard to find a company that is not evil in some capacity. And I mean, the good there's a show, The Good Place, with Kristen Bell, and it's amazing. And they have this, you know, whole calculations of whether people will go to the good place or the bad place, essentially, you know, heaven or hell. And no one's gotten into the good place for years because even if you buy organic tomatoes from Whole Foods, I mean, Whole Foods is owned by Jeff Bezos and the organic tomatoes, well, they were shipped from across the country, which really offset, you know, put off all these carbon emissions and you go on and on and on. I mean, again, it's not an excuse, but it's hard to find people who are doing everything right. It's a hugely challenging point. Like you cannot buy a smartphone without slavery somewhere in its supply chain. Yep. There's been a bunch of research and investigations. It is impossible yep. to buy a smartphone without directly contributing to slavery somewhere in the world. Well, someone someone has someone phone. someone has made one though, isn't it? The Dutch company has made a They tried to, they couldn't finish it. They couldn't get the, the, the they tried to, but they they failed because they simply couldn't get the parts the, the precious Sometimes. metals that they get yeah, from yeah. the from 
African slave mines. There was a really great episode, uh, podcast from Freakonomics talking about the avocado trade, mm-hmm. and they basically say, you know, a lot of vegetarians claim that they're doing it to make the world a better place, yep. but avocados are essentially the worst thing you can buy in the world. They are so heavily regulated by the mafia. They're directly responsible for drug, and, drug and trade. Yeah. Like 90% come from the same place in Mexico. Right. There's kidnappings and killings. And so, you know, you have to weigh these things in your hands and it's, it's tough. I guess the way that I think about it in my mind, for me, the way that I can sleep at night. And I mean, maybe that's because I'm, you know, we in this creative industry are good at telling stories to ourselves. But I, I think that it's about making companies just a little bit less shit, a little bit less evil. And however we can, whether that's, you know, redirecting media spend from Fox News or from Facebook, or whether it's, you know, having the conversation about trying to figure out a different supply chain. I don't think that we are going to be responsible for, you know, making huge changes in the world i'm not that you know don't have those delusions of grandeur but i certainly feel like we have a seat at the table talking to some powerful people and we try to use it in as a force for good we do you know but i do think there's a slightly different point here that it is interesting that as you observed right the people at facebook will find 40 million dollars for uh by in some cases inflating video views of their live platform by over 900 percent and doing it knowingly as far as they can tell for over a year, right? This is one of, and I did a count recently for a, pre- a webinar we did, something like 20 to 25 different metrics that Facebook has overstated, right? So it's been mistakes every single time in their favor. And as Galloway says, when a mistake is always in your favor, we tend to call that fraud. <laughs> At the same time, programmatic is rife with ad fraud, absolutely rife with it. An incredibly large amount of money is being um, sloshed into botnets and uh, various dark places. A lot of it is wasted then, because it's not just wastage in the old broadcast fun sense of wastage, which is people that don't buy your car, this will be seeing the ad, that's not that sort of wastage. It's wastage where nobody sees it, and you spend a lot of money for highly targeted Chinese click farms to go to your phone, right? So what I do think is interesting as an observation is that money continues to increase in programmatic and increase in Facebook, despite knowing that the numbers they give us and the numbers that we know are not true. And that to me is a bit weird, unless say, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you, fool me dozens and dozens of times. And yet as an industry, we keep putting more money into it. Maybe somehow I'm complicit somehow. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I, well, I think so that that goes back to Zuckerberg appearing and being grilled, you know, so, well, I mean, he he certainly done that thing what Rosie was talking about, which is, you know, suddenly this guy's in the dock and Gen- yeah. general public Joe Sixpack's going what's this guy doing in the dock for I use Facebook every day um, yeah. and so sort of questions are asked and he can't really answer a lot of them and um, so the what you know forget brands and corporations boycotting Facebook that's not gonna that's not gonna happen but 
Regula regulation is going to come in. I mean, they are going to be regulated. Um, and the I mean, I hope so. I just don't have confidence that when you listen to the questions that are being asked to Zuckerberg, it's clear that the people who are trying to enforce regulations have even less of a clue what's going on. I just, I don't, I hope that regulations do come into effect, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be in a helpful way based on the current conversation. Yeah. So I, I agree. I think the questions this round have been more informed than the questions last yep. round where they were like, sure. oh, when I send an email on Facebook and Zuckerberg's <laughs> like, you don't send emails on Facebook. And then we're like, how do you pay, how do you pay for this then? It's like, we, we run ads. They've got a bit more sophisticated than that. And AOC, obviously, and some of people know a lot about what they're talking about. But to Rosie's point, like, regulation is a good thing. And for some reason, in the last couple of decades, like, too much regulation is bad. It throttles innovation, obviously. But not enough regulation allows negative externalities that we all have to pay for to be not priced in to the products that we buy and sell, making them artificially cheap, making companies artificially profitable at the expense of the commons. Even, even the accursed Milton Friedman, who I hate possibly more than any economist in the world, I mean, obviously he's not alive anymore, but rest his soul, but his extraordinary abnegation of morality with his, the social responsibility of companies to create profits mantra and article, even he, believe that negative externalities should be priced in by government regulation, which is something that neoliberal economists seem to just conveniently forget in part of his schema at the Chicago school, right? Because ultimately, we're going to pay for it somewhere. It's just where and when and who. Sure. And the companies would require rather that they didn't pay for it and that we all did, right? So privatizing profits and socializing costs is not a good form of capitalism. Capitalism is a very powerful force when well regulated. And I guess the discussion is what's well regulated and how do you do it without the obvious regulatory capture that comes from having experts through a revolving door go in and out of government back to the banks they were normally regulating. Mm. I have another I have another sort of more conspiratorial theory as well to add the layer onto this. About so six six or seven years ago, um, you know the on, over in Governor's Island, there's sometimes sort of art, art projects and things that go on in the summertime, and I went over there. Yeah, we've been to one of those. Yeah, I went over there, and someone what? someone had had the sort of genius idea of um, imagining that Facebook was actually a government creation, that, that this was sort of a DARPA-like dreamed-up thing that happened to be, they put Zuckerberg, you know, it's like Zuckerberg was the puppet master, but really it was the government behind it all. And... Um, you know, it was obviously, you know, it was obviously a, a little bit of a, of a joke. But but at the same time, I was wondering, you know, you sort of wonder, whereas this has become sort of, we're talking about surveillance state. And yeah. we're talking about this being a massive apparatus of the state, of the surveillance state. It's an unspoken fact here. And yeah. do you really want to pull the plugs on it, um, you know, from, from that so, perspective? So it's interesting, right? Um you know, to, to follow that line of thinking, if we want to talk about the future, we, we can look at existing vectors or we can look at the roadmaps people are using cognitively or literally. Mm. And one of the most obvious roadmaps that our industry and kind of the culture around it has been using as we've been railing against for years is Minority Report. Mm. People observed that scene with Tom Cruise and they saw or that that technology was sort of nominally possible. And so we sort of built a surveillance state infrastructure, regardless of whether or not it's conspiracy theory, but you know, 
it would have been expensive and politically difficult for the government to put speakers in everybody's homes. But if you get Amazon to, to make the speaker, you know, sing songs to you or whatever, you'll pay them for the privilege and, and, and vice versa. So the roadmap is there and, and we've been following it pretty closely for the last at least two decades in our industry. And unfortunately, advertising has been the kind of um, funding mechanism for yeah. the building of a surveillance state infrastructure. Yeah. And um, there's a really great book that I just finished reading um, a month or so ago called Jennifer Government by Max Berry. And basically it's this satirical, uh, I guess, novel about a dystopian state where countries are actually run by for-profit entities and the government themselves have very little power. And actually, you know, if you want to sue anyone, you have to pay then the government salaries for those workers to take your case on and all this stuff. And it, it's funny, but it's also disconcerting because you read it and you're like, ah, I, I could see that happening. It doesn't seem that far off from the truth. Yeah, it's like how Black Mirror just gets it right every time. They're just a little far ahead, you know, just it's, a, it's yeah. you know, it's, it's always, God, yeah, it's just, but it's, it's plausible. It's totally plausible. Um, that someone right, someone right. could have a hard drive installed in their head. Yeah, that's possible. It's possible that a character could win an election. Um, yeah. And we used to, you know, there's that guy at Microsoft who life casts himself, who recorded every single thing. He did that like 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pretty clunky technology. Yeah. There's a guy doing that. And like the stories don't come from nowhere. These are experiments that people play with. And then the implications are rarely thought about until often too late because the rate of change is relatively fast at least under the hood if not culturally speaking one of the one of the things just to change uh, i know we're kind of running into like um you got a, a couple i don't know how about 10 more minutes um Good. yeah one of the things i think is kind of interesting is another another um tangent here is um and it sort of goes back to the netflix thing and it goes back to creativity really which is the sort of advertising industry created a monster with a television commercial and or, or with video advertising whatever you want to call it the sight sounds um visual medium yeah. is so potent it's so powerful nothing and, and that's to me the problem with digital that the 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 digital is so inferior um mm. as a compelling medium as the gasoline to fuel brands um that that you know it's it what's where when are we going to get to the the next level of impactful creativity through a medium that that fuses the best of digital with the best of tv i guess or the best yeah I'll let Ferris answer your question in a direct way. My, my less direct answer is, what if it's not digital precisely? What if it's experiential? What if all of our time spent on digital and online, the pendulum swings back to more offline experiences? I mean, Bud Light has been running, what's the festival, Made in America? Yeah. It's yeah. been running a festival like that. I feel like we're seeing more brands try to we say do things tell people um and sometimes those are brand actions that then yep. they turn into communications but sometimes they're these you know brand experiences and i don't mean brand experiences in the 
thing where it's like, oh, this is a shopping experience. No, you're just a store that people buy things from. That doesn't change the game. But if there are ways that brands can, um, you know, take our desire to be present and be in the real world, all this mindfulness talk, I think there could be something interesting and experiential. Yeah, I think those things are good. Um, I guess the, the, the internet, specifically the web as we use it, applications or otherwise, only medium that scaled that wasn't created specifically as a host vehicle for advertising, right? TV, newspapers. We're running. Hello? Tropes and type. We got cut off. We got cut off for a little bit. Says, right? The old media yeah but like McLuhan says right the old media the new media it sort of absorbs the old media and the tropes of old media become the content of the new and that kind of thing right so the internet and web definitely isn't and digital mobile is not a medium in the same way as other are and probably is never going to reconcile itself into a normative standard set of units beyond the programmatic and that kind of stuff and, and you know search is very very different it's not really advertising in the same way so i don't think that's going to happen again i think the idea of making specific predetermined commercial units that we know how to make as a model of business is got a lifespan of the next 20 or 30 years because tv isn't going away or anything mm-hmm. but it's never going to get as big as it was again and it's going to continue to fragment into different kinds of platforms and stuff like that so mm. the upside potentially is that we go through a Cambrian explosion of loads of experimentation and different kinds of things as brands try to work out how to establish intangible asset value around commodities and their production processes, right? And the other side of it is just that we retrench back and just say, actually, we'll just do TV ads. Doesn't matter. TV ads are great. People still watch them. Some people don't. Never mind. We're not going to talk to them. We'll just get them without them. <laughs> and that's probably what will happen ultimately, right? Outdoor becomes the last broadcast medium. Yeah, and then for shut-ins, you've got TV and, and, and digital. And that's but I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to me. To me, that like the re, the the innovation quota on creative units, it's not really happened. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just did a pro- in this in this presentation. I did. I mean, I showed you know a Sainsbury's kid on a bike in eighteen ninety five delivering groceries, and obviously everyone knows the Michelin yeah. guide. The Michelin guide. The Michelin guide was the first piece of powerful branded content. Um, but, but, you know, you know, and, and then experiences, you know, well, Weber sold their barbecues by making, having barbecues for people, you know, like, so, um, like, you know, so it, it, those things seem to be, and and then you, you've got Mark Pritchard going, well, you know, we're going to form alliances with Hollywood and other creators and, and we're going to, we're going to do sponsored programming. Well, that's where the soap opera started. That was like 1950s. Yes, that was that. That was their history. Yeah. And you remember? You remember Madison and Vine when um, who was the president of Coke at the time? Who I liked. Um, he went ended up going to Marriott after that. Anyway, he said the same thing. He's like, we're gonna go straight to Hollywood. They appointed CAA as their agency of record. They said we're gonna make content. This is like in the 80s, right? Yeah. And then maybe the early 90s. Early 90s. Um, and uh, then we're gonna. And then he said, you know. Um, 
Coke serves 1.7 billion impressions every day, so why aren't you paying me to put me on your cans? Which actually is a good idea in some ways. But, um, but yes, we go through these pendulous motions every couple of decades, right? The same, um, the pendulum swings back against one thing and then somebody finds, it tends to be very similar if you go back through history. But, but, I, think, but I, think, I think one of the things, I think one of the things that may, may, have, ch may have changed is the, the industry may have killed its golden, I mean, if you look at it in some way, the industry may have killed its golden yep. goose. I mean, rise of ad blockers, um, yep. skipping, uh, consumers in control here, and now you've got businesses that don't rely on advertising. Netflix, you know, you've got, you've got businesses that rely on subscription yep. models. They believe that the consumer's prepared to pay not to have ads. And that seems that that that's a worrying sign, yeah. I think. For, for I think it's interesting. I mean, Galloway says not to overquote him, but I am fond of his stuff. Yeah, he's, mm -hmm. he's I can tell. Patient. He says that increasingly, yeah, <laughs> increasingly advertising is a tax only the poor will. I knew um, you were going to say It's a that good thing. line. It's yeah. a good line. Whatever. So I do think though, Netflix, you know, is open to product placement, right? So there are other mechanisms that there's always a way. There's always a way, right? But yes, the the sort of fungibility of the 30-second spot, right? The, the, the replicability of that format uh, makes things pseudo-efficient in production terms because you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. If you have to bespoke produce something every time, it makes it much harder to be profitable, and that's a challenge for large organizations that have a great deal of overhead. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, business model evolution is necessary across the board, probably. Um, I, yeah, I... Yeah. <laughs> so just just as a, it's kind of like last words time. Um, okay. Maybe we should say, uh, other than creativity being the word for twenty twenty, um, uh, what else? Yeah. What else? What else are your predictions that will be? But when we're playing buzzword bingo this time next year, what would we? Uh, what will our buzzwords be from the world of um, marketing, advertising, and branding? I think. Uh, I said this last year, and I think it came in the same way. Brand safety is still a very big problem. Yeah. It's a huge thing. I think it's not really taken seriously enough. And I think people are going to start to, um, as per kind of with the Fox boycotts, people are going to start calling out advertisers specifically for their endorsements of uh, certain kinds of things. There is a hugely polarized environment we're working within now. and. That doesn't speak well for mass media brands that don't deal well with polarizing topics because they want to appeal to a broad swathe of humanity of the buying populace. Um, I think what else will happen? I think that we're going to see um, hopefully more diverse opinions being taken seriously in the workplace and not just people of different color in the ads themselves, although that is also welcome. But I think diversity will hopefully transition instead of just being something that um, we, you know, are showing to the people, something that we actually embrace because there is a business model for it. I mean, there's a business case for it, sorry, that companies, you know, who have 30% of females on their leadership teams, for example, are going to, on average, across the world and geography, be more profitable. So I hope that's something that happens more. 
I think that mindfulness is going to continue growing, um, and I think that will have an, in, an impact on our industry, both in terms of how brands might talk to consumers with that in mind, instead of trying to be in their face all the time, yeah. acknowledging perhaps that that's not the way and that these mindfulness trends will force them to do something. But I also hope that as an industry, it might become more relevant because there's been still so much bragging about being busy, which is just so gross to me. Mm. And I don't think it's something that we should brag about. I think, you know, perhaps it's tied back in to the creativity, but I would love to see more offices, you know, instead of offering perks like um, free candy or free beer, think about how to genuinely create work environments that allow, um, you know, employees to live a, a happy life. I think that will be something that that could have an impact on advertising, especially because we often get a lot of young people and people who don't want to um, work in these sorts of corporate environments. And now so many agencies have just become these corporate environments with dress codes and with specific times you have to punch in, punch out. I mean, I thought one of the benefits of working in advertising was that you could get in whenever you wanted or not be looked at weird if you came in at 10 a.m. So mm -hmm. I think those are some of the things that I've been thinking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's all good. Yeah, I, I think that... Oh, one more thing. One more thing that I was thinking about, and I don't exactly have an idea around it, but with everyone Marie condoing and getting rid of things, I think, um, I don't know if it's exactly, it's not upcycling, like, but reusing things or all the secondhand goods, like... Yeah. I remember when Patagonia did an ad on Black Friday talking about, you know, you don't have to, you can, you don't need to buy another Patagonia thing. If you've already got one, then it's good for life and yep. repair it and all that sort of stuff. Yep. So I wonder if that's something that will affect brands as well. I mean, less so obviously in consumer packaged goods, but especially in high fashion um, and well, fashion period, I wonder yeah. if that's something that we'll see uh, become more of a... Yeah, Scott, Scott Galloway believes so. Believes. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> he, he believes a lot in the secondhand, the secondhand market, the secondhand fashion business is overtaking okay, fast. Okay, I have to look up what he says so I can well, say it more succinctly next time. He's yeah. sort of saying it's going to overtake fast fashion. That fast fashion is sort of uh, on its uh, way out. Yeah, it feels increasingly toxic, and just it's such a disposable kind of thing. Its very nature is sort of increasingly toxic. I think. But. Yes, but also I think. Think in America, where you know we have just there are still salaries that are just so low. People are making below the living wage, and you know to buy something like a washer, dryer, or something, it takes so much savings. And I think still the fast yeah. fashion allows people to get that dopamine hit. But I guess the the secondhand stuff will. As, so as well. on that side of the equation, it's really true. Lots of people don't have any money, and they're going to keep doing the things they do to survive that's just the way it has to be the world isn't shifting that way i think in terms of there's going to be some big socio-political and cultural events in the next year extremely large ones that may have massive fallouts that we don't really have a way to predict yet because they're so unusual and so weird that we just don't know how brands are going to react and i think that will lead to a creeping conservatism in an already quite conservative industry on the other side of it in terms of implementation we have been bullish on the idea of, as you said, of doing things, of brands taking actions. There's actions that need to be taken. 
cause is that tends to be mostly hypocritical often, but just doing interesting things and then using those things to inform advertising, content, media, and PR. Because if you aren't catching the attention of media, both social and otherwise, mostly advertising is going to be ignored ultimately in the cacophony that we operate within because of the frequency of communication and because of the um, insane frequency of what we now call news. I think that's a good point to end on. I think it's like pretty good. Um, I really appreciate you uh, doing whatever you had to do to get the Wi-Fi and um, sacrificing your special or whatever whatever you're doing tonight. Um, I really appreciate. I really appreciate it. Don't worry at all. Thank you. Do Thank you for thinking of us and for inviting us. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.